Amen. Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Place your finger there and then put a finger in Matthew chapter 17. We'll read both this morning. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16, as well as Matthew 17. Hear now the word of the living God. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Now Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. This is the word of the living God, and we say, thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Now, O Lord, we pray that by the preaching of the word of Christ, our souls would be edified, our faith strengthened and increased, our hope shored up, our affections renewed, our doubts diminished, our desires for sin decreased, and our love for the Savior increased. We pray that the transfigured Christ and the word of his return would transfigure us from one degree of glory to another. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know about you, but perhaps as you have grown in Christ, there are certain stories in the Bible that become precious to you. Then there are other stories perhaps in the Bible that are interesting, they're neat, you feel like there's a glory here, but you wonder, I wonder what all that is about. Maybe you think you've got it figured out, only to find that later in life, or perhaps reading elsewhere in the Word of God, you realize there was more to that story than I realized. Boys and girls, we just read from Matthew chapter 17, and the reason we did that, even though I'm preaching from 2 Peter, is because Peter, who wrote 2 Peter, refers to a story that happens in Matthew 17. And it's a story that he's in. 
And when he was there with Jesus, James and John, Jesus was transfigured. The text says that he shone brightly. It was as if there was a glory about Jesus that those three disciples had not seen. Now, Peter gets it wrong in Matthew chapter 17. We'll see how he gets it wrong. There in the moment, he's experiencing this story, and he says some rather startling things. Lest we be too hard on Peter, we do as well when we encounter Jesus in the scriptures. But now, Peter, the seasoned apostle of Christ, points back to that story and says, there's a greater glory than I realized. Now, really what he says in 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18 is, I want you to remember the story of Jesus' transfiguration. Because I'm telling you that there are those who are going to tell you stories. And those stories are fables, they're myths. But I've been telling you a story that you ought to base your life on. Namely, that Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, that he died for sinners And that he's coming again. And because he's coming again, you ought to live a godly life as you rest on him. But there are some who have come and some who will come who will tell you fables and myths. Stories with fanciful kinds of details. But I was there when a true story happened, Peter says. And that story itself is an eyewitness account of the glory of Christ. And so when you're basing your life on this story, you're not basing your life on a fable. Because you see, Peter has spent the last 15 verses saying, hey, our hope is in Christ. We have promises. We can base our lives on Christ and his call to live a godly life. In fact, as we wait for his return, we ought to look different than the world. But there are going to be people who come who will scoff at the idea that Christ is going to return. And you're going to think it's like every other fable. But I want you to understand that we, the apostles of Christ, have not followed cunningly devised fables. Fables that twist words that sound like wisdom but that are lies. No, we were there and we saw his glory. And that story was actually a foretaste of Christ's coming glory. So when you rest in Christ alone and you live your life accordingly, you're not resting in a fable, but a sure word. That's what Peter says. If you want to summarize these three verses this morning, perhaps we could do it this way. The word of Christ's return is trustworthy scripture to safely base our lives on. You could say it differently, but I would suggest one way that we could summarize these three verses is the following way. The word of Christ's return is trustworthy scripture to safely base our lives on. Now notice that Peter has just finished, we looked at this two weeks ago, saying, I'm going to die soon and I'm going to make every effort to make sure that you're reminded of Christ and his gospel and the need to live a godly life after I'm gone. That's what he's just finished saying. The ink on the page is not dry, and then he says, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables. In other words, I want you to have a reminder of the truth of Christ, but it's not fake. It's not a myth. Maybe that's what you're here today and you're thinking. Your your thinking is this. My friend invited me to church. 
they are Jesus freaks, but I'll go. They, they said we could have lunch afterwards. I love my friend, but you know, all this Jesus stuff, it's just, it's just myths, like every other myth. It's really no different than every other fable or children's story. But Peter, who ultimately would die for Christ, wants us to see that when he tells us to base our lives on Christ and the fact that he's coming soon, it's not a myth. And he says, I was there. James was there. John was there. He was transfigured. And that picture of glory actually pointed to the coming of Christ. So let's dive in to this sure word this morning. Again, the word of Christ's return. Peter's going to spend three chapters. He's going to say the word of Christ's return is trustworthy scripture to safely base our lives on. Listen, if you're a Christian, the Bible calls you to rest your entire life and your eternal destiny on the story of Christ and him crucified and coming again. Christianity is a weighty thing because every bit of our weight rests on someone else. Listen, Christianity is not a message that you can earn your way to heaven. You're lost outside of Christ. You're doomed for eternal punishment because of your sins. And Christianity is a weighty thing because it says look to Christ and leave all behind and rest on him alone. So Peter says because this is a weighty thing, you need to know that you're not following a fable. Well, how can we know that this is a trustworthy word? I want to give us two main headings or two points to structure these three verses. The first is this, because it is a word proclaimed by men. Now, interestingly enough, the world sometimes says, you know, the Bible was just written by men. Perhaps you've been witnessing, evangelizing, and you've heard that before. Someone will say to you, why should I believe the Bible? It was just written by men. And you know, in one sense, they're not wrong, at least about part of it. The Holy Spirit inspired various men to take up pen and to write. But notice what Peter does as he discusses what he's writing. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, yes, part of their message was about the first coming of Christ, but really, Peter's talking about the second coming. That Christ is coming soon, and he's coming in power. The New King James Version uses the word fables. Maybe your translation has myths or some other uh, equally appropriate English word. But the Greek word underlying this word points to the kinds of stories that would have been told in the larger Greco-Roman culture that were often about gods, but were not literally true. Or... It could be that Peter has in mind what Paul had in mind when he tells Titus and Timothy, Titus 1.14, Timothy, 1 Timothy 1.4, not to follow Jewish fables. Our faith, Peter says, is not like the fables and myths of the Greco-Roman culture, and it's not like the fanciful stories of Jewish persons outside of Christ. No, this is a sure word. Well, what is the word? 
Well, the word is what we've made known to you. Notice what it is. What did Peter make known to them? What did the apostles make known to them? We made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Christ's second coming is particularly in view here. Notice later on in this book, in chapter 3, Peter will write these words. And this is why it's so important. You may be wondering, why is Peter jumping all of a sudden to the second coming? Look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, what are they going to say when they make fun of you? Christian? What are they going to say when they make fun of your God, Christian? What are they going to do when they're full of sinful lust outside of Christ and lost, but yet winning in the public eye? What are they going to say? Where is the promise of his coming? You're following a myth, you Christians. Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they will willfully forget that the word of God, for the, by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. What are they going to say? When they scoff and say that you're the one listening to fables, they're going to say Christ is not coming. So Peter says, I want you to know you're not following a fake story. When you rest your life on the fact that your Christ is coming for you. Thomas Schreiner reminds readers that if there is no return of Christ in view, then Peter's call for godliness in this entire chapter means absolutely nothing. Listen, if you're basing your life on Christ who was crucified, but who wasn't raised and who's not coming again, then Peter's call for you to live a holy and godly life as you wait means nothing. You might as well follow the pagan philosophy of the day, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. You might join in with the Epicureans of the same time period who said, listen, don't worry about the divine. The divine is not interested in you. There is no life after death. Seek pleasure and try to avoid pain. That was the Epicurean gospel. And here you Christians come along and what is your gospel? Live your entire life based on Christ. Live for him. Take up his words. Sacrifice for him because of what he's done for you. And when he returns, the crown of glory will be yours. And the scoffers will come and they will say, you are following a myth. You're not following cunningly devised fables, Peter says. The first letter that Peter writes mentions Christ's return, the day of the Lord, multiple times. You can read of it, for instance, in 1 Peter 5, verse 4. Paul himself will connect Christ's return and his power in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10. So this word proclaimed, yes, by men, was a word that is not a cunningly devised fable, but an eyewitness account. Notice what he says. 
We did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And then he's going to tell us what he means. Yes, they walked with Christ for three years. Yes, they saw miracles. Yes, many of them ran to the empty tomb. Yes, they saw him after the resurrection. Yes, Peter was restored by him gloriously before Christ's ascension. Yes, they saw him go into the clouds with the promise to return. But what does Peter speak of here? Where was the eyewitness of his majesty? Verse 17, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son. Peter goes to the transfiguration where once again he messed up in his response and says all of that was an eyewitness account that the glorious one is coming soon. And we got a foretaste before the cross, before the empty tomb, before the ascension, before Pentecost, we got a foretaste of the glory of the King of kings and Lord of lords. This isn't a fable. The apostolic message was not a message like the fables of this world. It was to be received as trustworthy. And his eyewitness account of the glory and power and majesty of Christ was when he was on the mountain and he saw Christ transfigured. And now the transfiguration becomes a little more clear to us. Ah, Even before the cross. Even before the empty tomb, even before the ascension, there was a glimpse. Just for a moment, the veil was pulled back from the eyes of these three and through their pens for all of us who believe that there is a glory beyond measure about the King of kings and Lord of lords. And when he says he's coming again, that glory will be fully on display. So yes, yes, You're not basing your life on a fable. The transfigured one is changing you, and he's coming soon. So the word of Christ's return is trustworthy scripture to base our lives on because it was proclaimed by men who were eyewitnesses to the glory of Christ. Now it's at this point that some of you in this room may be wrestling Because the Holy Spirit is starting to work in your soul. You're not a believer yet. You're not in Christ. But you're strangely drawn to the story of Christ. Perhaps you're strangely drawn to the scriptures that flow off the tongue of a person that you see whose life looks different than everyone else. And you may say to yourself, well, I understand that there's an eyewitness account here, but people claim all sorts of things. We don't have time to get into all of the eyewitnesses, eyewitness accounts of Scripture, but there are many. We don't have time to get into how these eyewitness accounts were put together in such a way that if they were fables, they would not have been written the way that they were. One example, who were the first women or people to see Christ raised from the dead? Women. You're going to construct a fable in first century Greco-Roman culture. The last person you would use to see Christ first would be a woman with a difficult past. You see, within the first 20 years of Christ's 
ascension happening, people basing their lives on Christ. You see culture changing because of the message of the gospel. You see a steady stream over the last 2,000 years of the gospel changing lives. What fable, pray tell, will do that? No, this was an eyewitness account, but a particular one. Not only was this a word proclaimed by men, but I want you to see secondly, as Peter says, it was a word preached by heaven. Boys and girls, do you know that there was at least once a time when heaven preached? By heaven, I mean God. But Peter says, while trying to convince them that this is not a myth or a fable, he says, we saw his transfiguration. We heard with our ears the voice that came to him from the excellent glory. And of course, he's referencing this transfiguration that we read of in Matthew 17. And interestingly enough, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, called the Synoptic Gospels, each time the story of the transfiguration occurs, it's followed by a discussion of Christ's coming kingdom. The transfiguration was an early declaration of Christ's soon-to-come glorious return. And I can't help but take you for a moment to Matthew 17. Turn there with me. We read it just a moment ago, but turn there with me for a moment. The connections abound. In this account, Jesus takes Peter and James and John to a particular mountain. There he's transfigured. We get a description of what that means. The text says his face shone like the sun, Matthew 17, 2. His clothes became as white as the light. No earthly bleach will do this. And then, strangely, in their midst, Moses and Elijah appeared to them and were talking with Christ. Peter has an interesting response, a response of surprise and ignorance, as we will see. But then notice verse 5, while he was still speaking, that is Peter, Peter interrupted by a heavenly sermon, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. If we had time to just walk from Genesis to Revelation and consider all of the times where clouds appear and what they may mean, you would be absolutely astounded. For who can forget the cloud of Exodus 40 verse 35 being the glory of God abiding and overshadowing the tabernacle? Interestingly enough, in 2 Peter 1 verse 18, our text, Peter says that they were on a holy mountain which at first glance may call us to say to ourselves, well, I want to know what mountain it was. Maybe it was a special mountain. That's not what Peter means. The mountain was holy because it was the place where God's presence particularly dwelled. And in that moment, where is the cloud? Where is it that God has made his presence known? He makes it known where Christ is. And he says... This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. 
You see, the mountain was holy, much like the ground was holy in Exodus 3.5 when Moses was told to take off his shoes. It's holy not because it's particularly special ground, but because God is there and God is doing something there. God is preaching there. Wherever God's presence is uniquely known, that is a place that is considered holy. So if you read the Old Testament, there were certain instruments, there were certain places, there were certain mountains, there were certain people that were set apart and considered holy. Where is the cloud now? That ought to remind us of Hebrews 12. Perhaps you thought of it before I could say it. Every Christian has come where now? To Mount Zion. To the place of the living God. To the company of innumerable angels. And to the blood of Christ that speaks a better word. The cloud of God's special presence The place that is holy now is His church because every last Christian is united to Christ, the one that Peter was told to listen to. Don't build an earthly tent for Moses and Elijah and Jesus, Peter. Listen to Christ. It is in Him that I am well pleased. See, heaven actually preaches in that moment. And what is the message? Christ's person and work is fully approved of in the eyes of God. And you may think, well, hasn't the first person of the Trinity always kind of thought well of the second person of the Trinity? (laughs) But in this moment, it's, it's not one member of the Trinity saying another member or person of the Trinity is approved of. That's assumed. We have one God existing eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No, this is heaven, the voice of God, saying of the God-man, of the mediator, of the one who was living a righteous life, of the one who was sent to die for sinners, I approve and am well pleased in this one. Matthew Poole, the commentator, says this regarding that statement. This implies not only that Christ is peculiarly the beloved of the Father, but that all they that are adopted to God by faith in Christ are beloved, graciously accepted in and through Him. Listen, when you read the account of the transfiguration, multiple things ought to ring in your ears. One of them ought to be, Second Peter helps me to further understand what's happening in Matthew 17. We're all getting a glimpse of the glory of the returning Christ. But another thing ought to occur to us now when we read of the transfiguration. And that is, if all of heaven is pleased in Christ, if God declares, look at this one, In him I am well pleased, and I am in him. Then of you, as you are united to Christ, God says, I am well pleased. 
You see, as a child growing up in the church, I just thought, well, this is a neat story. Jesus started to glow and everybody had a party. Peter once again got corrected. (laughs) And there is some of that. But this is Peter, James, and John getting a glimpse, not of a fable, but of a glory that is to come. And so in verse 19 of our text, Peter says, this eyewitness account is confirmed. Notice what he says there. And we have the prophetic word confirmed. The word that all of the prophets of old have been speaking to. We have it confirmed. The word of Christ's return is true because heaven has preached it. You say, well, when did heaven preach of Christ's return? Well, in the transfiguration. Because there, that glory was seen for just a moment. But Peter helps us to understand that all of that was ultimately about showing that this is all true. That there is a glory about this one, and when he comes, all of the veil will be pulled back from our eyes. Now, quickly, we're going to be looking, Lord willing, at verses 19 through 21 next week. Admittedly, when I sat down to work on this sermon, I thought we were going to include it this week, but I couldn't get past all of the the transfiguration. But notice in verses 19 through 21, Peter continues about this word of Christ's return. We have the prophetic word confirmed, meaning everything that's been said by the prophets has been confirmed, particularly in our eyewitness account which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. I cannot wait to preach that verse. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. A prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, moved over the period of time of the, the law and the prophets and the wisdom literature and moved as Peter, James, and John saw with their eyes the transfigured glory of Christ who is promised to return. So Peter can say, when I take up pen and I tell you, wait for Christ to come, it's worth it, and pursue godliness as you rest on him alone, as you place every bit of your rest in Christ only, You're not following a fable. It's sure. I saw the glory of the coming king of kings on the mountain. Now, one final note, and we'll draw some lessons and be finished. Isn't it interesting that Peter is the one who writes 2 Peter? Peter is the one to help us understand the transfiguration story a little better. It's Peter Why is that interesting? Because do you remember what Peter said in Matthew 17, verse 4? In the midst of this transfiguration, Peter, the one who always tends to speak before he thinks, perhaps some of you are like that in your walk with Christ. I know I can be sometimes. Peter sees this transfiguration and says, let's make earthly tents. One commentator points out, How are you going to make earthly tents, things of this earth, Peter, for future heavenly glory? 
But notice Peter also says, hey, let's make one for Jesus. He's obviously worthy. There he is, shining as bright as the sun. Let's give him a tent and let's make two more. One for Moses and one for Elijah. We'll have a three-tent party and heaven preaches, listen to one. There is one, it's Christ. And now, many years later, the seasoned apostle says, all of those old prophets, like Moses and Elijah, they were all about Christ. You see, we have the advantage of Peter's mistakes. Peter gets it wrong, and then he gets it right. He gets it right because heaven literally told him, it's Christ. It's Christ. Listen to him. He is the final word, and he is in line with all of the prophets of old, like Moses and Elijah. Now, you read 2 Peter 1, verses 16 through 18, and you may think to yourself, how is it again that the transfiguration is about Christ's second coming? Well, let's make some lessons, but let's answer that question first. One more time. Verse 16 of 2 Peter 1, Peter says, after saying, I'm going to make sure once I'm gone, you always have a written account of these truths. We did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So the second coming is in view and witnessing his majesty as an eyewitness is in view, when was that witnessed? Verse 17. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. Okay, I, I see now. Peter is talking about the second coming, and he witnessed something wherein heaven spoke. When was that? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Do you see the connection? Peter is going to labor long to say, live a godly life as you wait. But it's not a fable that you're basing your life on. I have evidence. The evidence that he puts forward is the transfiguration. So what do we do with this? How do we apply this to our lives? Well, let me just give you four options to consider this week. Four practical lessons, and we're finished. Number one has already been stated in a variety of ways, but it's this. Christ's glorious return has a sure foundation. The pens of Holy Spirit-inspired men who saw glorious things have said it, but heaven itself has spoken the transfiguration was heaven, if you will, breaking into earth to show the glory of the coming Christ. When Peter says, live a godly life as you wait, he can point to the glory that is to come. He saw in just a moment some of that glory. Christ's glorious return has a sure foundation. Listen, Tuesday night of this week, Friday morning of this week, Saturday evening when you feel like your week has just gone way 
off the rails, and you're not even prepared to think about coming next Sunday to hear the word preached. In those moments, you need to remind yourself that Christ's glorious return, which changes everything for you. Listen, if Christ is coming and he is your savior, and he's coming in power and glory, then how you live now is worth it. It's worth it. You need to remind yourself all of this painful journey that I may experience as a Christian is worth it because he's coming. And my brother Peter saw just a glimpse of that glory. His glorious return has a sure foundation. But secondly, when you read the story of the transfiguration, remember that it's a source of hope for you. It was not simply a neat moment where Christ's glory was seen. At least that's how I thought about it in Sunday school as a child. No, the veil was pulled back for the three. And through them for us to see what was to come for us after the cross and the empty tomb. The Baptist preacher of the 1700s, John Gill, writes these words about our text. Quote, this, meaning the transfiguration, this was a prelude and pledge of his power and coming, of his kingdom coming with power, and of his coming in his own and his father's glory, and in the glory of the holy angels. At the same time that they saw with their eyes his human body glorified in an amazing manner, was to them a confirming evidence that he would come again in power and glory. And upon this evidence, they declared and made known to the saints the power and coming of Christ, end quote. Listen, the next time you're flipping through your Bible and you're in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, and you read the transfiguration, don't read it without remembering how Peter helps us to interpret it. It was three disciples who were stumbling along for three years, getting a little bit of an extra glimpse But it was more than that. It was for them and for all of us to know, hey, there is a coming glory soon. Christ is coming. And when Peter, years later, says, live your life in a particular way. Rest on Christ alone. Leave your sins. Leave your works behind. Rest on Christ alone. And the world looks at you and says, you're following a fable. You remember, our brother saw him transfigured. There was a glory there that the world knows not of. What glory is there in the fleeting sins of this world that I'm going to give up Christ to follow? In the moments when I'm tempted by the small luster and shining diamond of this sin or the the small fleeting glimmer of this ruby of a, a sin... What does that have in comparison to the glorious transfiguration that my brother Peter saw that he told me of? There was just but a glimpse of the glory that will be when he comes. Listen, every day of your life ought to be lived in such a way that you can say as you put your head down at night, Christ is coming and I lived for him today. And every night if you're like me, you'll fall short. And therein you say to yourself, the one of transfigured glory already knew of my failures, so he took up every bit of the law's demand for me, and he died for me, and I'm united to the transfigured one. And his glory, the glory of heaven's land, 
is my glory. Here's a third practical lesson. Heaven has placed its stamp of approval on the God-man's task. I want to speak to you here today if you're not a Christian. Listen, just look around you. The world was clearly created by a designer. Just look around you. Things exist. So something has always existed. But it can't be just the stuff out there because it's always falling apart, always changing. Something eternal and unchanging has always been. It's just clear from nature, Romans chapter 1. But God, this eternal unchanging one, has spoken. And here you are living your life in your own way and you have to ask yourself a question. Where does my creator place his approval? How will I know him? How will I find him? And the transfiguration was one of those places where God says, look at my son. In him I am well pleased. So then you ought to spend your time studying who was he? What did he say? Well, he said things like this. Come to me and I will give you rest. St. Augustine of old said, we're restless until we rest in Christ. You keep reading about Christ and you hear him say things like, come to me and I will not push you away. You, you see him weeping over lost people of his own tribes. Saying things like, I wish that you would come to me so that I may gather you together like a mother hen gathers her chicks. You see his appointed messengers saying things like this. There is no condemnation, no judgment for sin for those who are in Christ Jesus. The world preaches to you that there is a God and that God preaches to you that there is a Savior. Do you know him? Do you know him? God has said that he approves of the perfection of his son and of his work. You want to know how to have heaven's approval? Listen to heaven's voice as it says to you through this text. Jesus is my beloved son and in him I am well pleased. And for you, Christian, when you seek to live in line with his coming, you are living in the glory of what the transfiguration was just a precursor of. Heaven loves the glory of the Son and the glory of his work in saving sinners. Heaven loves your pursuit of godliness as you're wrapped in the robes of righteousness of Christ. So heaven has placed its stamp of approval on the God-man's task. And lastly, I want you to think about what we're doing here but about what you do Monday through Saturday. A final way to consider our text before we close is this. Evangelism is joining in with heaven's message. Now that may not seem clear at first, 
but it's an implication of our text. Listen, Peter says that the foundation for resting your life on the coming Christ is the word of God. Part of the verification of that word was what Peter saw. Well, what did he see? He saw heaven, the eternal glory, God, say of the Son, I am well pleased in him. In one sense, when you preach Christ, you're simply joining in with this voice of heaven. When you tell your neighbor on Monday evening over a cup of coffee, hey, I want to tell you about Christ Heaven is pleased in his work alone. You're joining in with heaven's preaching. Boys and girls, when you go to your school or you're playing on your baseball team and one of your friends says, hey, why do you go to church on Sunday? And you begin to tell them about Jesus. You're just joining in with heaven's message here. This is Christ. God is pleased in him. When you stand on a street corner and hand out tracts to people who figuratively or literally spit in your face, you're joining in with heaven's glory. Your evangelism is not you offering puny words to lost people. It is you simply parroting the very voice of God to a lost and dying world. Think about this. So often in our evangelism, we feel alone. We feel by ourselves. We say to ourselves, I'm not going to have the right words. They're not going to listen to me. When am I going to get to that moment when I can kind of turn the angle and kind of get to Jesus? I had one of those this week. When am I going to get to that moment where you you can get in the right words? You think to yourself, ah, I feel so insufficient for the task. You are. You feel so weak. You are. You feel so unworthy in yourself. You are. But listen, your evangelism is not you trying to convince the world to trust in Christ. You are simply reporting what God has said. World, this is the beloved Son in whom God is well pleased. Listen to Him. In your evangelism, you're simply joining in with heaven's message. Brothers and sisters, Peter will tell us that the word of Christ's return is trustworthy scripture to safely base our lives on. We can trust it because men who were inspired by the Holy Spirit, who were eyewitnesses of grand glory, have testified to it. And because heaven itself has spoken over this one, Christ our Savior. Are you in him? And if you are, Do you see the glory that is to come? If you do, no amount of godly living in this life will be a waste. And when the world says, you're just following a fable. Respectfully, without a sarcastic tone or heart, You can think to yourself, no. He, the glorious transfigured one, is coming soon. And he's coming for me. Let's pray. Living God, help us. As we see scripture passages working together to preach Christ, help us to love and savor him more.
as we see the world scoffing at our returning Christ, help us to hunker down and rest on him all the more. When we're dry, doubting, full of fear in this life, help us to remember the glory that is to come. That in just a few moments, really, Christ will be coming for us. We pray that you would diminish the luster and shining, shimmering kinds of temptations that we face in this life. Because the brightness and the glory and the pristine light of the Son of God has flashed before our eyes. May that light pierce every bit of our darkness so that we rest not on a fable in our minds, but on a sure word. In Jesus' name, amen.